Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends. Good to see you. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod and a special treat for this Thanksgiving week. It's no wonder that after four years of Donald Trump in the White House and Mitch McConnell as Senate leader, no wonder we're feeling so cynical, maybe even hopeless about politics. But reading the new book by Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, I was reminded that it is possible to get things done in politics, and it is not impossible for Democrats and Republicans to work together for the common good. They've written a great new biography of former Secretary of State James Baker, which is no doubt one of the best political biographies I've ever read, and I've read a lot of them. Title of the book is The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III. It's a great story with a hopeful and inspiring message. Peter Baker, no relation, is chief White House correspondent for the New York Times. His wife, Susan Glasser, is staff writer for The New Yorker magazine. Peter and Susan joined me recently at the Hill Center on Capitol Hill to talk about the vast contrast in politics under Donald Trump and politics Jim Baker style. Hello, uh, Susan Glasser, Peter Baker. Good to see you. Welcome uh, virtually. Oh, we're delighted to be with you. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you. I got to tell you, congratulations on... Uh, your book, The Man Who Ran Washington. Um, I'm a political junkie. I read a lot of political biographies. This is one of the best, if not the best, I've ever read. It's a real tour de force. So congratulations. And thank, thank you. you. Thank you That's so much. very kind of you. Thank you so much. And we will uh, certainly encourage uh, all of listeners uh, to uh, get a copy of The Man Who Ran Washington, uh, not only for yourself, but you know, it's a holiday season for your friends. It's a, it's a great read, they will love it. So Peter and Susan, uh, remarkable man, Jim Baker. Um, he worked for four Republican presidents in our lifetime. Um, before we get to Jim Baker, I'd like to ask you a little couple of questions about the one Republican president in our lifetime he did not work for. <laughs> uh, so here we are, as we joined together today, two weeks exactly from the 11th or November 3rd election, Joe Biden, the clear winner, Donald Trump to this day does not accept the results. What's going on? Is this, does he really believe he won or is this just a big act? Peter, you wanna start us? Oh, yeah, sure. Thanks. I get the tough one. All right, look, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, he said a couple of things, I think, in recent days that, you know, clue you into the idea that he understands that he lost. He's simply denying it. He simply can't accept it. He refuses to accept it. But he, you know, the other day he did make a statement in the Rose Garden where he refers to this administration does it this way, but the next, and then he kind of stops himself. The other day he tweeted about Biden. He says, well, he won because of this, these, this reason or that reason. And then he quickly took it back. I don't mean that he won. I won. So, look, you know, people tell us who are behind the scenes that, of course, he understands what's happening here. 
but it is he refuses to accept a loss. This is all about creating a narrative where he can tell people for the rest of his days that he never lost, that he was stolen, it was cheated, all that kind of thing to save his 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 pride. And it's uh, you know, he's if he takes the country, you know, through uh this period of upheaval and, and creates so's decision, dissension and suspicion, that's a price he's willing to pay. Yeah. Well, Susan, do you think this is all about 2024? You know, honestly, I, I actually think uh, it's so destructive of our democracy right now. Uh, and, uh, you know, whether Donald Trump is ever a candidate again for high office, I, first of all, I think that the default setting ought to be deep skepticism about that. Um, you know, it's very uh, unlikely, in my view, that he follows through. But, you know, it seems to me we remain in a crisis. The crisis that we've been in for the last four years. The crisis is Trump, and until January 20th, uh, I, it seems to me we're still in a crisis. And you know, it's it's so fascinating, in fact, to hear how uh, week in and week out we continue to uh, Trump is able, even now, to a remarkable degree, to set parameters for public discourse that are so astonishingly outside of the norm. And you know, even listening to Republicans uh, talk about well, you know, it's just letting the process play out. I could not be more clear. This is not the process. This has never been the process. Uh, you know, we'll talk, I'm sure, about the 2000 election and Jim Baker's role. Yes, in it. Right. But the bottom line is that that was a tied election that came down to one state where there were a few hundred votes separating the two candidates and a genuine set of questions about what to do about that. Uh, that's not the case here. There's no process by which any other president uh, or even losing candidate has pursued spurious lawsuits alleging a massive national conspiracy in multiple states with no evidence. Like, that's not the process. So listening to Republicans sort of say that right now is, is pretty extraordinary because, in fact, actually, we do have a process. There's a 1963 law on presidential transitions. It's not being followed. And uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm still going to be in the same mode I've been in until January 20th at noon. Right. And, and Peter, you know, you and I spent a lot of time in the White House briefing room together I mean, with our colleagues. Um, but for the last two weeks, Donald Trump's been MIA, and it's not like there's anything, nothing going on in the country, right? We have uh, 11 million Americans now who've caught uh, who's at the, the coronavirus, uh, almost a quarter of a million who've died from it. Uh, he hasn't spoken about that or like anything else. Every day, it's no public events on the president's schedule. No, I think that's exactly right. And the only time we've seen him was that one statement in the Rose Garden. We didn't take questions yeah. last week, and that's basically it since the election week. Um, and it's rather striking. I can't remember a time actually his entire presidency where he went this long without us, uh, you know, hearing him talk and asking questions. It's actually very unlike him. It suggests, of course, the depth of his, uh, uh, you know, issues with the election. That he's having a hard time coming to, to to terms with the reality around him. And I think that uh, it is. It wouldn't be that big a deal if there weren't maybe a big crisis, but there is. Aside from the political crisis, as you point out. We're in a really bad place with the coronavirus right now. Probably, I haven't done the math, but probably 10,000 people have died in America just since Election Day. Uh, you're right. Other than having him take credit for the vaccine last week, we haven't heard him talk about it. He hasn't told Americans what they should be doing about it. He hasn't given any advice or guidance. He hasn't talked to the governors. He hasn't met with the coronavirus task force. He hasn't met with Anthony Fauci. Uh, and, and neither is the vice president who's the head of the task force. So I think that it's a... Uh, 
it's a rather um, extraordinary moment to go missing uh, at a time when the country is in need of leadership. Uh, and, and, uh, and I do want to move on, but Susan, you mentioned the process. It's not just that the process is not being followed. Um, the president and his people are blocking the process from going forward in terms of intelligence briefings or uh, just normal meetings between the ingoing and the incoming and the outgoing uh, administration people. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's uh, something much more um, systemic. And, and once again, it, in fact, Trump has sort of benefited, it seems to me, over the last four years from the continual sort of representation of what he does as mere rhetoric or, you know, as some quirk of personality that he makes these unfortunate tweets. But, you know, you should really look at what they're doing. This is actually yet another case where the actions and the, the inflammatory actions and the inflammatory words are matched up with each other. Uh, and uh, that's been true, by the way, in, in many policy areas as well. It wasn't just that Donald Trump uh, you know, uh, tweeted nasty personal attacks on former Vice President Biden and his son. Uh, it's that he actually sought to weaponize the U.S. government uh, and our mm -hmm. military aid with Ukraine in order to attack the vice president. I think we're seeing something similar now. It's not just that Donald Trump is tweeting in all caps, I won an election that he lost. Uh, it's that he is also following that through with actions that spread throughout the government, and by the way, multiple branches, because it's also uh, the Republican-led Senate, as well as uh, the um, executive branch that are refusing to recognize the reality of the impending transition. Yeah. So the book, The Man Who Ran Washington, um, just as a writer, I'm always interested in um, sort of the talk about process, right, uh, before we get to the man himself. How did you decide? Um, to focus on Jim Baker, uh, and how does it work to write a book, the two of you together? <laughs> it seems to me for a husband, even a husband and wife team, that must uh, must have been not so easy to manage. Tell us about it. And it took seven years, right? Well, that's partly the answer to your question, right? Is it's <laughs> not an easy thing to do. It did take us seven years to do. But uh, look, we wanted to do a biography of somebody whose story was compelling by itself, but also whose story told us something larger about Washington. And Baker really is, as Dom Donilon, who was Barack Obama's national security advisor, put it, the most consequential, most important, unelected uh, official we've had in Washington, arguably in, a, in, in modern times, certainly a half century, maybe since World War II, we can argue about Kissinger, the national, somebody like that, but really up there and somebody whose influence was so paramount for so long at so many uh, big moments in our history. From the end of Watergate to the end of the Cold War, he had his fingerprint on almost every major event that happened in Washington. And not just small things, uh, but big things. The end of the Cold War, the reunification of Germany. Uh, and it was, you know, normal secretaries of state have people write biographies about them, even if they don't do anything. Here's a secretary of state who literally helped, you know, steer the end of the Cold War and ran five presidential campaigns. It's like Henry Kissinger and Karl Rove rolled into one. And again, I think also that what appealed to us about the story was not just his own personal story, and we learned a lot about his history we can talk about, but also the story of Washington, how much has changed since his time. Yeah, right. Susan, uh, so you wrote the first draft, and then Peter came along later. Is that how it works? So I, well, a little bit the reverse, actually, in this particular <laughs> uh, we We did write a book uh, previously together. So uh, right. we, we had 
at least good hopes of remaining on speaking terms. Uh, and, you know, I'm happy to report as of today, we still are. Um, you know, we so we wrote a book uh, called Kremlin Rising about our time in uh, Russia and Vladimir Putin's sort of rise and consolidation of power. That's the period we were there. And that was in some ways much easier to organize. Essentially, it flowed from our uh, reporting as Washington Post bureau chiefs there. And, you know, we literally kind of wrote a table of contents and split it up 50-50, you know, in terms mm -hmm. of the chapters, because uh, they were thematic chapters. But this is one subject, right, who carries through the whole thing. And there are characters, obviously, who who narrate that story along with Jim Baker. So that, that kind of organization wasn't possible. Also, it took a long time. Uh, and uh, largely because of the rise of Trump four years ago, we had actually planned to become foreign correspondents again and to uh, finish the book. We, we, we were mostly done, uh, certainly with most of the research uh, four years ago. And so in a way, uh, it, it both delayed the book, but it also gave it a kind of a framing and an urgency that we had not expected. And we'll talk about that, but our parallel conversation with Secretary Baker about what to make of the rise of Donald Trump and the, the hostile takeover of his Republican Party became, in a way, uh, it helped us to understand our subject in ways that perhaps we would not have. Uh, mm -hmm. That balance between expediency and, and access versus uh, principle, obviously, was a tension that came out much more in, in talking about uh, the Trump-era Republican Party. But it also meant that it took a lot longer. But basically, yeah. Peter did all the hard work, and uh, you know, <laughs> I, uh, I'm very grateful to be profiting off of his... Uh, well. Well, how much time did you spend with Secretary Baker? Well, we did. Uh, we interviewed him in his home in Houston, his office in Houston. We interviewed him in his ranch in Wyoming uh, for memorable weekend we had out there. We interviewed him during in Washington visits when he would come to town at his office here or at the Willard. I would say about seventy hours worth of formal interviews wow. over time. Mm -hmm. And uh, but not just him. I think what really made this book fun was. Um, he gave us access to all his archives, unfettered at Princeton and at Rice University. And that was a great trail of breadcrumbs to kind of put together his life. And we interviewed his, his wife, Susan, who was remarkable and very, very, you know, uh, insightful. We interviewed all eight of his children. Uh, we interviewed his cousin, who's like his brother growing up. His nanny, who was 170 years old and still going strong, was around. As well as all the poobahs, you know, the former presidents and vice presidents and all those kinds of people. Actually, it was the family members, of course, who I think are most, you know, helpful in doing a book like this. But a lot of biographers will tell you they prefer subjects who aren't around to critique, you know, the final product. But Baker right. was incredibly gracious to us, very generous, very open. He never tried to put a single subject off bounds, including painful uh, moments in his life and personal uh, stories within his family. Um, he never tried to steer us. I don't think he ever really tried to, uh, you know, in any way uh, determine what we were going to write. He, he, he trusted that we were going to write a fair book. It was going to be an independent book. Right. And one thing that struck me, and I thought I knew a lot about him, is that, um, you know, he, so he's from Texas, and he loves wearing his cowboy boots, and he loves his ranch, and he wears his cowboy hat. But he's really a patrician. I mean, with his pedigree and his grandfather and father, right, Susan, he's... That's right. He is uh, actually, uh, although his name is James A. Baker III, he's actually the fourth James Addison Baker. Uh, I must say, after seven years, we never fully penetrated that mystery. That the official explanation is, well, we weren't that good at counting. Uh, but <laughs> the bottom line is, he he is the son, grandson, and actually great grandson 
of uh, James Bakers who were, uh, they were not Texas oil men, but they essentially were founders and builders of the modern state and, and especially the modern city of Houston. And uh, they were corporate lawyers who rose along with the fortunes of the railroads and the oil and gas business. And, uh, you know, Baker was the sort of the hero's son expected to inherit this very uh, burdensome legacy born in the Great Depression, completely insulated from its effects. Uh, he uh, lived in a world that was of great privilege, but also I think he was very constrained in many ways uh, by the obligations and the family sense of what was right and proper. And that included uh, the family maxim of staying out of politics. He had uh, his great grandfather, Judge Baker, was known as Judge Baker because he served for one year during the Confederacy as an elected judge, uh, then booted out uh, uh, during Reconstruction. That was obviously a searing uh, impact in some way on the family. Forever after, you know, basically the motto was work hard, study, and you know, keep keep clear of the dirty business of politics. Right, uh, Peter, you you indicated you mentioned Karl Rove earlier, um, and that's what one thing I found remarkable too is that so Karl Rove gets a lot of credit for running one camp presidential campaign. James Carville gets a lot of credit for running one president. I mean, the number of jobs that James Baker had, top jobs, is remarkable. Yeah, no, it really is. Yeah, he, he absolutely was the indispensable man for Republican presidents for a generation, right? So Gerald Ford uh, plucks him out of the Commerce Department, where he had been installed by his friend George Bush, helped him get a job there, and makes him, in, in effect, the delegate hunter of the 90, 1976 convention, and then his, his campaign chairman for the fall, helps him come back from 30 points down, almost enough to, to, to pull it out against Jimmy Carter. Then, of course, he goes on to run his friend George H.W. Bush's campaign against Reagan for the 90, 1980 nomination and critically pushes his friend Bush out of the race when it no longer looks like he can win, but early enough to keep him from alienating Reagan in order to get him onto the ticket. And then runs Reagan's reelection campaign from the White House, Bush's uh, campaign 1988, and then again in 1992. And then, of course, is Florida. So, I mean, I think that, you know, really, you know, no Republican president didn't turn to James Baker for a generation at some point or another to help him win office or stay in office. And then um, Treasury Secretary, Secretary of State, and Undersecretary of Commerce, right? Plus Chief of Staff. <laughs> A lot of jobs. Well, that's right. I mean, look, the interesting thing is that Baker always found, and, and in his career, his remarkable career in Washington, there is this tension that he himself expressed between what he saw as the somewhat grubby business of politics and his yearning to sort of break free of that, also to, you know, not be saddled with the label of being a handler or a a, a fixer or a behind-the-scenes staffer, but wanting to be, in Washington terms, a principal in his own right, wanting to be uh, a statesman eventually. And, you know, those two things sort of uh, never fully being reconciled. Uh, and I think it comes down even today at the age of 90 in his sort of ambivalence about what, uh, you know, how to look at uh, politics and a, a lens through which understanding uh, that it was the means uh, to the end of governing. And of course, that's probably the major difference from today, right, is that uh, he and George Herbert Walker Bush, his best friend, uh, and with whom his career is completely intertwined, both of them, I think, uh, saw what you did in campaigns as one thing. But they were very focused on the idea that the goal was governing and uh, 
a kind of leadership that involved bringing along uh, a majority of the American people where you could and doing things uh, as a elected official that would translate perhaps into political benefit, but were not done exclusively through the lens of campaigning. Peter and Susan, let's uh, take a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod, and then we'll continue our conversation. And today's podcast with Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, the great men and women, 1.3 million strong of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone. They're the people who service so well at our big grocery chains like Safeway and Stop and Shop. Our big retail markets like Macy's and Nordstrom, meat and poultry processing plants, chemical plants, and cannabis workers as well, all on the front lines during these days of COVID-19. We salute them for their good work and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back on today's podcast, a special podcast with Peter Baker and Susan Glasser from The New York Times and The New Yorker magazine, respectively. Their new book about James Baker, The Man Who Ran Washington. So you describe him as a doer, uh, he, and he was a doer. Uh, and he told you, quote, the point of holding power is to get things done and accomplish things. Uh, again, how different from what we see and hear today? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And all these conversations we had with him, that's what he, you know, his lament was. Why is there not getting anything done? He would just watch what was happening in Washington, his ranch in Wyoming, and just sort of throw his hands up in exasperation. His voice kind of raises kind of an octave when he gets all, uh, 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 you know, exasperated with what's going on. But you're right, it, it, it was about doing. And so, you know, yes, there were elections. We did what you had to do, as Susan said. But then in 1983, he sat down with the Democrats and he re, refigured out the social security system, put it on a financial footing on a bipartisan basis the last time that's happened. In 1986, rewrote the entire tax code, top to bottom, with the Democrat, Dan Rostenkowski of Chicago. 1989, right after that brutal 1988 campaign with Michael Dukakis, sits down with Jim Wright, the Democratic Speaker of the House works with Jimmy Carter, the former president, to solve the Contra War, which had just consumed Washington for a, for a decade. These are the kind, you know, his view of it was there's no point in winning office if you're not going to get something done. Uh, and on the foreign policy uh, front, Susan, uh, the first Gulf War, right? I mean, the, the time that he took and the effort that he did with President George H.W. Bush to put this coalition together, unlike anything we've ever seen. Well, that's right. In fact, uh, it was the Since first World War II, I guess, at any rate. But well, you know, look, this was actually the first war that came very close to turning a profit for the United States because uh, Baker had assembled such a big coalition. Uh, you know, he went around the world. They called it his Tin Cup tour, 
uh, and uh, you know, brought in so many people. Baker, interestingly, uh, was really by inclination, temperament, experience, and I think deep-seated belief, uh, very, very wary about the uh, exercise of American military power. And, uh, you know, Bush was adamant that, you know, this aggression will not stand when it came to uh, the Iraq invasion of Kuwait, but at the same time pursued a, a restrained uh, a version of that war when given the chance to march on to Baghdad. Mm -hmm. Really, unanimously, his advisors chose not to. Uh, and, you know, Baker was wary of the military conflict. That's one area where he went along with Bush, certainly, and, you know, was a leader of it. I think had he been the president, I don't know that that is a decision that he would have made, actually. Right. So um, I was curious, there were two, a couple of lessons uh, sprinkled throughout, uh, several th sprinkled throughout the book, but two that caught my attention um, that sort of Baker lived by. Um, one of them, the five Ps, poor preparation, no, prior preparation prevents poor performance. Exactly. Yes. He lived by that, Peter, right? He lived by that. That came from his family. And I think if you mentioned that to any of his kids today or any of his former age, their eyes would roll. They certainly heard it enough times. <laughs> it was a mantra. Now, you know, Susan always likes to say there are a lot of, you know, hardworking workaholic people in Washington, but it, no question that his mind was you did not do something lightly. So you would get ready for the Sunday show and you would spend hours, you know, Spitballing every possible question and answer to the point where Larry Speaks, who was Reagan's spokesman, finally got so exhausted by these sessions every week that he would start making excuses like he had to go to his son's baseball game or whatever just to get out of them because they were so laborious and so uh, endless. But that was the way he succeeded. You know, he got nothing to chance. Everything was, uh, was mapped out in advance. He wasn't an intellectual, but he was uh, a good student and he was a good uh, you know, homework doer. And he made sure he didn't walk into any room where he wasn't the master of the material. Uh, and the other lesson that popped out at me, Susan, was never lie to journalists. We like that one. Yeah, that's one of our favorite lessons. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. That actually came from uh, the very beginning of Baker's public career. And this is something I think Peter and I did not realize, just how extraordinary, first of all, late in life, Baker's, uh, you know, switch to politics was, I, you know, the most successful mid-career switch I've ever heard of, frankly. Uh, he was not... He was 45 years old when he came to Washington, and he had an obscure appointment essentially in the Commerce Department, which, as you well know, was not the center of the action then or at any time in Washington. <laughs> and yet somehow within one year of that, uh, uh, due both to uh, his talent, I think, but also to a series of you know fortuitous accidents, he ended up running the uh, election campaign of the incumbent president of the United States, Jerry Ford. And uh, one of the things that happened was uh, Ford, uh, because of Watergate, an entire generation of Republican operatives essentially was taken down, right, in the scandal. And so there were opportunities that might not have otherwise been available. And Ford is this sort of accidental president, doesn't have a big political operation of his own, uh, you know, was a congressman from Grand Rapids, Michigan. His longtime political advisor is supposed to be running uh, the, the convention floor for Ford, is killed in a car accident uh, in the middle of this campaign. Uh, and uh, a young uh, guy named Dick Cheney uh, uh, at the White House has been impressed with uh, um, Jim Baker over at the Commerce Department, plucks him out, 
and has him running the uh, floor count of the delegates for Ford. That turns out to be the very last convention in American political history <laughs> that's decided on the floor of the convention. So this becomes the crucial role. In the course of doing that, uh, Baker observed Ronald Reagan's campaign manager, John Sears, uh, employing all kinds of puffering with the national press and saying, well, our delegate counts show this and that. And of course, it was BS. It wasn't true. And Baker, on the other hand, was much more cautious, stuck to the facts. In the end, they won on the floor. And Baker won a reputation with the National Press Corps for uh, being a straight shooter that, that he carried with him. And, and still is today, right? I mean, in dealing with you. Right. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. We were worried. Uh, you know, he certainly is a, is seen as an expert at the, the Washington art of managing the press corps. Uh, and he could be an aggressive spinner. He's certainly uh, a strong advocate on his own behalf and his point of view of what things were. But uh, it was more in the massaging of events and or perhaps putting himself at the center of the action, as he very adeptly did when he was White House chief of staff for Ronald Reagan. He would give background briefings to the reporters for Time and Newsweek and sort of help them reconstruct that feeling of being in the room uh, conveniently with Baker perhaps at the center of the narrative. Uh, but we really found um, that he was a straight shooter, uh, and he was willing with us uh, at the end of his uh, career to talk about things that were, were even very painful and awkward. So he was always so close to the presidency and made or broke the careers of some presidents and never became president himself. Is that um, a frustration of his? Was it ever a goal of his? I think he's at peace with it, but I think it was a goal for a period of time. You know, we went through those archives. One of the things we found that I thought was really striking was a file folder from his Treasury Department uh, files. And in the file folder, all these letters that people were writing him at the time in the 1980s saying, you should run for president. You would be a great president. He saved all these letters from random people. Why? Because he because just because that was flattering? No, he thought he was thinking about running for president. Of course, I think if you spend so much time with presidents, you start to think, well, I could do this job, right? These guys aren't any smarter than I am. I'm, I'm good enough for this. And I think he clearly felt that he was qualified and would have been a good president. He thought about running in 1996 uh, about it. We asked him, why did you not run in 1996? And he said, well, I was tired. I'd been, you know, up in the, you know, high office now for so many years. I was exhausted. And thank goodness this is one of the interviews where his wife, Susan, was sitting in because she kind of interjected at that point. She said, oh, honey, she said, the party had begun to move away from you. You were too liberal from them. Now, this is the Gingrich era, right? Gingrich had just come to power in 1994 election, and Baker's not a Gingrich kind of Republican. It, 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 and she was right about that. He wasn't liberal. He is a Texas conservative by any stretch of the definition, but he was a pragmatist, and pragmatism was on the way out at this particular moment, so he didn't run for president. I think he would have enjoyed being president. I don't think he would have enjoyed running for president. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride sort of yeah. story, right? Um, uh, and one president, of course, that he was so close to uh, from the, their days back in Houston playing tennis was President George H.W. Bush. It was, a, it was a close and yet always an uneasy relationship, Susan, wasn't it a little bit? I mean, he, he knew he was smarter than George Bush. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
you know, they certainly brought different strengths uh, to the table and their careers are intertwined to a remarkable degree. I mean, I think it's fair to say certainly that Jim Baker never would have been secretary of state or other things if not for George Bush. But I think it's probably also fair to say that it's, it's much less likely that George Bush would have been president without uh, Jim Baker, and they both knew that. They were as close as brothers, and that was one of the questions I think that Peter and I had starting out on this book, was what was the true nature of, of, of Bush and Baker, right? You know, you know that they were friends from the country club, but you know, that can cover a whole range of human relationships. And I think we, I think we felt that we were able to answer that more uh, than we had been, that their relationship was much closer than certainly I understood. And it tells you everything I think that you need to know about what the foundation was, that when Bush's, when Baker's first wife, Mary Stewart, was diagnosed with uh, cancer, with terminal cancer, uh, uh, she was still in her 30s at this point in time. They had four young sons in Houston. The only person in the world that he told about this was George Bush. He sent him a letter and he said, dear George, I'm telling you this. I haven't told Mary Stewart herself, which tells you an awful lot about the insane state of uh, the world in 1969. Uh, I haven't told uh, my mother, I haven't told our sons, I'm telling you, George. And you know, a secret like that, uh, that speaks to a bond that is certainly beyond uh, the normal relationships that you find in politics. And when Mary Stewart died, the last two people outside the family to see her were George and Barbara Bush. And, you know, Baker told us at one point, you know, that he considered Bush not only like a brother, but also that I think he was somewhat dazzled by Bush in the early stages of their relationship. Bush was a little bit older. He had been uh, a World War II hero, whereas Baker mm -hmm. had been too young to serve at that time. Also, I think, you know, Bush had, had gone farther than Baker to break away from uh, the stifling legacy of his father. Bush's father was Prescott Bush, the very regal uh, senator from Connecticut, uh, so imperious he made his own children call him senator uh, at the dinner table. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, B Baker also had a pretty intimidating father, and uh, yet he had spent his first few decades really living in the shadow and, and doing exactly what his father wanted him to do. And, and so I think they shared a real bond, but they went into the business together of politics. And mm -hmm. even when you go into business with your brother, you're going to have moments of real friction and tension. And there were several that we found in this book uh, in 1980, when uh, Baker really is the one who prods Bush to get out of the primary race against Ronald Reagan uh, before Bush is ready to do so. That was one such moment. Uh, then in uh, 1988 campaign, as Baker is just coming into it, when Bush chooses Dan Quayle without even consulting with Baker beforehand, and we all know that rollout did not go very well. And then probably the biggest crisis in their relationship was in 1992 when uh, Bush lost his reelection campaign. And there was a real sense of bitterness, I think, among many members of the family, especially Barbara Bush, and feeling that Baker, you know, had sort of been the invisible man, that he hadn't done enough to help get his good friend George reelected. Uh, and Peter, his son, George W., felt the same way, didn't he? And, and so distanced himself from Baker until he needed him. Yeah. Yeah, I said something about Baker's uh, skill set that, you know, whatever sourness there might have been at that point, the person that George W. Bush called in 2000, uh, in that November morning when he's looking for somebody to help him win Florida is Jim Baker. But, you know, you're right. I mean, W. was one of the ones who I think was a little sour after the 92 race. 
he didn't want Baker to be part of his campaign in 2000. He wanted to look like his dad's you know, campaign redux, so he was trying to be an independent figure. But when push came to shove, when the presidency was on the line, Baker is the one he called. And Baker uh, hustles over to Florida on the same day. Uh, he brings a suitcase with a couple changes of clothes, figure it would be a couple days. And, uh, and there's there for 35, 36 days like everybody else and, 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 and basically secures the win for Bush. So I think that that reinforced the, uh, the bond again between this family and Jim Baker. Uh, and here's this man that uh, just about everybody in Washington respects and even likes uh, uh, for getting so many things done and being so easy to work with. But as you point out in the book, when he went to Florida, he didn't go down there as Mr. Nice Guy. You know, he went down there, Susan, as a killer, right? He was, <laughs> he was gonna win that recount for That's right. First of all, you know, even many Democrats, you know, when we talked with them and they said, you know, listen, as soon as we knew that Baker was coming in and he was going up against Warren Christopher, the uh, former Secretary of State that Al Gore had enlisted, uh, we figured that uh, you know, we were in trouble. Uh, Baker had a formidable reputation at that point in time. He saw himself there not as a statesman, but as a, a lawyer with a client. Uh, and his job was to uh, uh, secure the win. He felt that uh, they had a strong position in the sense that uh, Bush was ahead in the count. And he felt that strategically it was extremely important that they never fall behind. And that informed his thinking from day one. Uh, but, you know, Christopher, there's this great scene in the book where, uh, you know, they've, they've scheduled a meeting with each other, and Christopher is prepared for it like a, a, a negotiation uh, with an overseas, uh, you know, foreign minister. He's got a plan A, a plan B, a plan C. Uh, they've got two hours booked on the schedule for this meeting. Baker sort of shows up, hey, Chris, how you doing? Uh, and uh, the meeting is over in 15 minutes because Baker made it very clear that there was nothing to negotiate about. You know, my position is my guy won. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you've got something to talk about, let me know. Right. And I guess you both agree that um, today Rudy Giuliani doesn't quite fill the bill or <laughs> fill Jim Baker's shoes. Well, <laughs> My colleagues, uh, Annie Carney and Maggie Heerman, reported that Jared Kushner was looking for a James Baker-type figure. Uh, so we called the original James Baker to say, well, what do you think of what's going on now? And he said, look, you know, there's a big difference between Florida now, not just what Susan, I think, pointed out earlier that the, 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 the numbers are so far different. But what President Trump was asking for was they stopped the count before they ever counted them. And that's not what happened in Florida. They counted the votes in Florida, and then they had a machine recount of all the votes in Florida. And then they had their fight about further recounts and whether some ballots that hadn't been counted should be counted or not. Baker's point was you can't not count the votes to begin with. He says that's just a very hard decision to defend in democracy, which you quote, I think, in your column in The Hill today. And that's a very important distinction. He, the, the, Bush people never said don't count the votes. They said we have counted the votes and we've won. We don't need to keep recounting them again and again. We've got now, and, and Donald Trump is somebody who's trying to figure out some way to overturn the result as we all see it in front of us. Right. So we just have a few minutes left, and I'd like to circle back where we started because um, here comes a Donald Trump, certainly not the kind of Republican that Jim Baker is, doesn't represent the Republican Party that Jim Baker grew up and loved and was loyal to. Um, but he agrees to meet with Donald Trump. I didn't know about this, I read it in your book. In 2016, during the primary, when it looks like Trump, it's pretty clear Trump's going to be the nominee, right? 
Uh, how'd that meeting go? Tell us about that. <laughs> well, you won't be surprised to know that Donald Trump did not take Jim Baker's advice. <laughs> uh, you know, look, uh, Baker... Well, Baker did go in with some advice for Donald Trump. This, this is what you should do now Absolutely. that you're... And in right. fact, still being very canny, even well into his 80s, he, he had written it down also so that Trump could not mischaracterize this or claim, you know, that meeting with him constituted an endorsement or any such thing, which it did not. Uh, you know, Baker had endorsed uh, Jim, Jeb Bush, of course, earlier in the primaries. Uh, they only met very late in the game when it was already clear that Trump was going to be the nominee. And, you know, Baker essentially advised him to be the un-Donald Trump. Uh, if you look at the, the memo, which we have now, it's, you know, be more presidential, uh, campaign in the center in the general election, uh, get some real advisors uh, around, stop talking about things that can't possibly happen. You know, it, and that's the thing that's that's so I think we came to see Baker struggle with how to deal with uh, Trump as really the struggle of the Republican Party itself, uh, you know, fundamentally uh, uncomfortable with Trump, both uh, as a character uh, and uh, substantively what he represented. Baker remains uh, an internationalist to this day, someone who deeply believes in diplomacy and in working with allies and partners, uh, uh, believes in free trade, uh, believes that uh, running up the budget deficit isn't a good idea. Uh, uh, you know, he helped to negotiate uh, what became NAFTA. He obviously uh, doesn't support a policy of building walls with Mexico and, uh, uh, you know, demolishing, you know, putting up tariffs and yet could never fully renounce Trump either. And that was the fascinating thing. Uh, you know, again, that meeting uh, went about as well as you could be expected. Uh, Baker refused to endorse Donald Trump. Uh, but in his own mind, you know, he, he still held out the idea that I'm still a Republican and this is where my Republican Party is at. And he did vote for him both in 2016 and remarkably enough in 2020 as well, even though he told us that he considered Baker at various points, uh, Baker told us at various points he considered Trump to be, quote, nuts, quote, crazy, uh, but he could never disavow him. Well, that was the giant disappointment to me at the very end of the book, that uh, I understand voting for Trump, Baker vo Baker's voting for Trump in 2016, but the fact that he did so in 2020, after living through, like all of us have, four years of Donald Trump, uh, Peter, what was it, just simple party loyalty? Well, what he says is, look, you know, I'm a Republican and uh, I believe in the judges and I believe in the deregulation and the tax cuts and I don't believe in socialism. And while he doesn't think Biden is a socialist, he worried that Biden would be pulled to the left. Um, you know, at one point he actually told us, he, we were sitting to have lunch at the Willard Hotel here in Washington one day last year. He says, you know, I could probably vote for Biden if, if he wins the nomination, which I thought was an expression of where he actually is most of the time, because Biden is his kind of Democrat, the kind of Democrat who would sit down with a Jim yeah. Baker and cut a deal. They're both institutionalists. They're both, you know, uh, and then two months later, we saw him again in Texas. He says, don't say I'm going to vote for Biden. I am going to stick with my party, even if my party isn't sticking with me. And I thought that was really interesting. But I think that for me, it came down to just where Jim Baker's instinct is. Remember, this book is a study in power, not a celebration of power. And Baker's idea of power is you don't have any being on the outside throwing bricks at the wall. You only have power if you're on the inside. And his instinct is just always be on the inside, even if you're not always comfortable with it, and that you have a better chance of steering things on the inside. Now, he's not trying to steer anything at age 90 at this point. But I just think mm -hmm. that's his natural instinct is not to be a rebel. And then in the end, he stuck with his party. Right. 
Uh, would you both agree that kind of um, one of the one of the messages, central messages, if not the central messages of the book, is that they don't make um, politicians like this anymore. Uh, certainly, don't make Republicans like Jim Baker anymore. Look, the Republican Party is not the same Republican Party that uh, Baker was a master of over a couple of decades in Washington. And so it's it's ultimately the story of a man, but also of a moment, a moment that's gone in time. The structural incentives, uh, even were a modern day Jim Baker to exist, uh, it, it's hard to see how you would overcome uh, where our politics has moved to in, in such a dramatic fashion. Uh, it, it's a period of time uh, that seems gone and vanished, not to be nostalgic for. There was obviously a lot that was uh, bad and wrong uh, that happened in the 1980s as well. But I do think that uh, it's hard to see the Republican Party today. You can see the the germs, perhaps, of what would uh, you know grow to be uh, uh, this today's party in the 1980s, and people can talk about the culture wars that were unleashed by Ronald Reagan, or you know the Gingrichian, uh, you know scorched earth, zero sum politics. I would note that Baker was really on the other side of many of those internal fights back uh, in the 1980s, uh, and you know those were the things he and and Bush were uh, essentially the last of a breed of a kind of Republican establishment politicians that basically lost out in the internecine warfare uh, of the Republican Party. And your choice was to adapt or die. Uh, yeah. Perhaps you could say with Baker's vote for Trump, he chose to adapt. Again, a real joy to read. Thank you so much. The man who ran Washington, the life and times of James A. Baker III. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Susan. We'll see you again. Oh, thank, thank you so you, much. Bill. And that's it for today's special Thanksgiving week podcast with Peter Baker and Susan Glasser. Again, I heartily, heartily recommend buying the book, The Man Who Ran Washington. You, like I, will be inspired by the life of James Baker and the work of James Baker, even though he disappointed us all by voting for Donald Trump in 2020. Well, this is a big week. Please be careful. Follow the CDC guidelines for Thanksgiving. Uh, and despite the restrictions, have a great Thanksgiving. We'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod when we talk to the man who will probably be the head of President Joe Biden's economic team, Jared Bernstein. We'll see you then on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.